HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. Chef Stephen Satterfield appeared on this episode of The Line as part of his new peanut sustainability campaign, Making Sustainable More Attainable. Check out the videos of him preparing some of his favorite peanut recipes at peanutbutterlovers.com. Thanks again to Southern Peanut Growers for supporting this episode. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Satterfield, the executive chef and co-owner of Miller Union, a celebrated ingredient-driven restaurant located in Atlanta's West Side neighborhood. Satterfield was the winner of the 2017 James Beard Award for Best Chef Southeast and has been nominated four additional times. The restaurant, which opened in 2009, has become an institution and has been recognized as a top restaurant in America by Eater, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and Esquire. On today's episode, we talk about opening his restaurant and how he has kept it up and running smoothly after all these years, his childhood growing up in Savannah, seasonal Georgia cooking and the many local ingredients he works with, including peanuts, Georgia is the largest peanut producer in the United States, and also discusses his previous life as a professional musician. And a quick note, if you're a chef or owner and want to pitch your own story as an episode for The Line, feel free to drop me an email. Send over your bio and a quick note to the line at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, on to the episode. Yeah, let, okay, cool. Let's let's jump into it. So, uh you are you're a Georgia guy. You were born and raised there, right? That's right. And so where did you grow up and what was it like growing up in Georgia? Did you have dreams of of, of leaving or did you think that you'd stick around? You've been sort of a Georgia guy through and through. You did college there and then you've you've stayed there and opened up a business. So I'm curious what your early life in Georgia was like. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Savannah on the coast. So, you know, it's kind of an idyllic place to, to raise kids. My parents had four kids. We were a pretty big family and um, they were both educators. And we, you know, we, we lived in a neighborhood where it was just like, super safe and everybody and knew each other and all the kids would run around in the neighborhood like 
in packs and <laughs> there was just no, um, I don't know. It seemed, it, it was almost kind of like this sort of perfect scenario. Um, but you know, it's a small town and when I, by the time I got to the end of high school, I was definitely ready to, to leave. And Atlanta was an easy target because, um, well, I mean, I was going to college and, you know, in-state school and save a lot of money and, and get a good education. I went to Georgia Tech and uh, got in to the architecture program there and was, had, had a partial scholarship and had some AP credits. So I kind of like cruised in, you know, cruised in hot. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it was a big change to, <clears throat> to move to Atlanta. I was living on campus at first and a very hard program, um, but I really, really appreciate my education there. And although I'm not practicing architecture at all, um, it definitely taught me a lot about myself and tapping into the creative side of your brain, um, working long hours, being disciplined. Um, those things, I think, I really took away from that program. And and I made some great friends and really enjoyed the education side of it and the, and the design side. Um, I definitely have a lot of, uh, eggs in my, in my, um, aesthetic basket and, you know, think a lot about that sort of in all parts of life, food and design and music and everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I went through the program. I actually spent one year studying abroad in Paris and um, that was an amazing experience to be living in France as a student um, in a big city. And that definitely changed my perspective on the world. I was able to travel a lot during that time. Um, it was back when, you know, you could just hop on a train with a URL pass and go to any neighboring country. And I did that as often as I could on the weekends or whenever there was a French holiday, which were, there were very many. Um, there still are, but yeah. And I, I think, um, that was a big part of shaping who I became and who I am now. And a lot of it was being exposed to great food and a different type of culture where people eat seasonally and shop, you know, almost every day just to make something fresh. And, and I cooked a lot during that time period. I was living in an apartment by myself and, you know, didn't have much money. So I was certainly being frugal and economical. And one way to do that is to just, you know, cook at home. And I, I at the time I was, I was pretty much vegetarian, partially for economic reasons, but also just because I was just going through a phase. I'm definitely an omnivore now, but my love of vegetables has not wavered. You got very familiar with beans and some French stews while you were studying yep. abroad. Definitely. <laughs> Did uh, I mean you know moving from from anywhere to France as a student as a young person? There's this very romantic notion oh, of what that experience can be like, and a lot of people they go for you know a couple weeks or a semester. You were there for an entire year. Did you ever? consider, oh, that maybe this is my new home. Maybe I'm, you know, someone who, 
who could make a life for themselves in Europe? Um, or did you think to yourself, like, this is a finite amount of time, I'm going to enjoy it, but I really do think that I'm going to move back to the United States or, or Georgia? I think um, there was a moment where I certainly romanticized the idea of staying. In fact, um, I didn't go back for my graduation, which was immediately after I finished the semester um because my the landlord where i was staying she said you know if you want to stay for the rest of the month of june because we finished like late may and she said i don't have a tenant coming and you can just stay on um and i was like yes i would love to do that so i stayed an extra month but you know i in reality it wasn't it wasn't a, a good um scenario because I couldn't really stay as and, and work there. I would have to, you know, apply for a visa and go through a lot of rigmarole. And, and even though I, I did learn French while I was there, I could get by and, and speak pretty good conversationally. But, you know, it's a, you're an outsider when you're in Paris. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's hard to meet people it's hard to meet french people and to get and to assimilate into their culture um so ultimately i i just um ended up coming back towards the end of june and this was in 1992 so um 30 years ago um but i i did surprise my father uh i came back on his birthday like flew back you know the same day they were having a party for him my mom was trying to get me to come and I wouldn't commit. And then I just sort of did it on a whim and didn't tell anybody I was coming except for one of my brothers who picked me up from the airport. And so I surprised my whole family by just reappearing one day. <laughs> I imagine that, uh, you know, Southern hospitality is a stark contrast to Parisian, uh, let's just call it stoicism, or maybe uh, there's a bit of a you know, maybe a bit of a, uh, I don't care who you are type of vibe in Paris because you're not a French person. Um, so I'm curious about that sort of Savannah life and Atlanta life. Savannah is coastal. Um, it has kind of a slower vibe, right? And it has a, um, well, there's, it's an old town, right? It's a very, very old city. So, um, I imagine that it, contrasts starkly with with Atlanta, which is sort of big and bustling and, and metropolitan. Is that a correct assessment or sure, sure. I mean it, I mean Atlanta is just continues to grow and grow and grow and it seems to have like boundless limits. Um, Savannah is definitely like geographically it is limited. So there's a river on one side, there's an ocean on one side, and then there's just, you know, kind of like you go out towards a bunch of agricultural and, and rural areas. And so um, it's, it just has its, its parameters where it can't really, I mean, it's, it's an amazing place and it is one of the most beautiful cities in the country. And it was America's first planned city um, and it was built in the late 1700s. And so, you know, it has this incredible preservation to it. So some of the architecture and the, and just the city plan are, are really well preserved, and it's it's a beautiful place to explore. Um, Atlanta is a, a really interesting place. I love being here because I feel like there's 
so much opportunity. Um, it's still just growing <clears throat> and it's, there's something about the lifestyle here that's like relatively easy compared to other big cities. And I, I can't really put my finger on it. I think part of it is just, there's just a little more space. It's not quite as dense. And so you just kind of have this feeling of, you know, there's, there's a good bit of space around you and, and it reflects in sort of the, um, you know, cultural scenarios here, like, like in our restaurant, for instance, um, you know, people don't really like sitting super close to one another. They expect a little bit of space between each other. Um, but that's, I think one thing that people enjoy about Miller Union is that they can actually have a conversation and they don't have to, you know, it's not super noisy and loud. They can hear each other. And there is somewhat of space between, you know, the tables. Um, we're, we're lucky enough to have that that kind of real estate in a restaurant, whereas you know in New York or in Paris, that's just not an option. Like everything's just crammed in. Which probably I my least favorite thing about New York dining is that it is your proximity to a stranger. I, I don't find it that charming or romantic to be able to you know hear everyone's conversation and eat food off someone else's plate if you want <laughs> i don't love the six inches of space that occurs in new york uh yeah not that that's that's kind of charming and and it just has a different feel you know um i can imagine that during covid that was a much more difficult scenario and in the more dense cities whereas you know in Atlanta, we, we fared differently. I mean, we, we had a lot more opportunity to um, kind of have some breathing room, which was pretty important during that time. Yeah, it's true square footage. And if you're trying to do a combination of marketplace and indoor seating, and also you have to space tables out 50%, if you have a 600 square foot dining room, you're not really getting much accomplished, right? Um yeah, we'll 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 jump into Miller Union in a little bit, but I also want to ask about just, you know, growing up in Georgia and what type of food you ate growing up. I I think that that from the outside perspective of people that have not spent a lot of time in the South, myself included, they have a very very limited understanding of what quote unquote southern cuisine is. I believe that you can speak to the idea of a uh, maybe a misinterpreted or underrepresented Southern cuisine. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many different regions of the South and they all are kind of known for different things. Um, you know, in Savannah, I think when I think about sort of the iconic things that we ate, I mean, we had a lot of shrimp, um, crab, blue crab, very, very, um, prolific colony of blue crab down there. We would go crabbing. We had a boat and we would go crabbing and pick up fresh crabs and steam them and, you know, put the newspaper out and have a, a crab party. Sounds awesome. And low country boil where it's, um, or frogmore stew is another name. It's the same dish, but essentially it's, um, simmered shrimp in the shell sometimes there's crab in there too some smoked sausage uh, sweet corn new potatoes 
onions, peppers, and it's all just cooked in a very flavorful broth that's actually discarded. So you don't really eat the broth. It's more of a a way to infuse flavor into these ingredients. So a lot of a lot of Old Bay or some kind of you know um, crab seasoning, and then dipping sauces like melted butter and and cocktail sauce and mayonnaise or garlic mayonnaise or whatever. And that's that's just like a very efficient way to feed a big crowd uh, in the summertime. And all those things are available in the summer. Um, we also used to have um, Savannah red rice, which is, you know, there's different variations of it, but essentially it is a kind of a, a old school, like paella style um, dish that has um, smoked sausage or bacon fat, shrimp, okra, it's a tomato, spicy tomato broth and you cook it in a skillet, no, no peak with the lid on until you get that, you know, nice crusty bottom. And that's the old fashioned traditional way to make it. But it, it was actually like a common side dish at, in the school cafeteria, which I think is really funny. Like it was a vegetable side dish was, you know, red rice, just like plain, like tomato based rice. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, agriculture in, in Georgia. Um, so there's lots of, you know, fresh vegetables. Summer lasts a lot longer here. We were talking about this yesterday. It's like, it really starts in May and it goes to October. So we have almost six months of summer and it has three different kind of micro seasons. Um, even though technically it's spring, we're going to start seeing summer vegetables within a week or two right now because it's May and it's already. Are those micro seasons like hot, hotter and hottest, or is that yeah. basically what it is? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, you know, the, the spring, the late spring is when you start, first start to see summer vegetables. We're going to start seeing peaches and blueberries and summer squash like within a few weeks. Um, and it's, you know, it's the first week of May. And then, you know, June, July, then you start seeing, um, you know, the tomatoes and, and peppers and, you know, the cucumbers and all, all the fresh stuff, beans. Um, and then late summer, it's like all we have is peppers and eggplant and okra, lots of okra. We also have peanuts, too. Um, Georgia's a massive producer of peanuts. We're the biggest um, producer in the, this. The state of Georgia produces more peanuts than any other state. And boiled peanuts are a hot item here um, all through the summer. It's a you know, very traditional thing to pull over at a roadside farm stand and get your produce and some boiled peanuts on the way to the beach or to the mountains and um, for your summer vacation, eat, eat the boiled peanuts in the car and make a mess. Um, and it, it, a lot of people don't really know what those are, but it, you just, they're, they're fresh, freshly dug green peanuts that are boiled in the shell. And they're, they, the peanut kernels turn really soft and it's a very salty water or um, sometimes it has spices in it. And you just crack open the shell and eat the tender uh, boiled peanuts inside. And it's a very different experience than eating like a roasted peanut. It's um, kind of almost mushy and very salty and it's just one of those things like it's an acquired taste but if you 
like them, then they're very addictive. And so, you know, tons of peanuts grown in Georgia. I don't even know what the process is of growing a peanut. Are they are they cultivated on a farm in rows with irrigation? Is it more wild than that? Like, are they grown underground? What is the process exactly like? They have to be dug up? Let me tell you about peanuts. (laughs) (laughs) So they're a legume. They're not a nut, uh, which a lot of people don't realize, but they have such similar properties to nuts that they are often grouped and categorized as a nut culinarily. They, um, when they, when they first start to grow, so they're in fields, they're planted and, um, the, the, the peanut itself is the seed. So like the, the peanut kernel that you eat is the seed. Um, and they, they grow a, a pretty lush green canopy. Um, there's, they're a summertime crop. So it's, they really come into, um, harvest in the late summer through October. Um, but the peanut is interesting because most legumes grow above the ground. Think about um, any kind of bush bean or anything like that. Those are all legumes. Um, and they grow pods that are either edible pods or you shell, shell the bean or the pea out and you eat the, the kernel. Um, the peanut uh, actually, uh, once the flower forms, it the vine pushes it down into the ground and it has these long, like tenderly vines and, and the, the flowers form the pods and those develop underground. So they do need to be dug up when they're harvested. Um, and they're, they're usually dug up mechanically and they basically cut off the green canopy and often just scatter it back into the field. And then the, um, the, nuts or the, the peanut um, uh, pods are then harvested, they're washed, get all the dirt off, and then they're separated into different sizes. Um, the hulls are used for a lot of different things. They can be like, um, they can be used to make faux wood products. They can be um, turned into like, bedding material they can be spread out in a barn for um, animals to as the as the ground covering so there's a lot of different um, things that, that can be done with the different parts of the plant and they're incredibly good for the soil so you know where you think of some crops as like really just draining the soil of all its nutrients um, peanuts are an excellent crop and and um, before the before the next crop, whatever wherever peanuts were, the soil is incredibly rich with um, nitrogen and it has a lot of nutrients in it. So they don't really require a lot of fertilizer or anything like that because they they actually fertilize the ground themselves. Um, but they do um, have a lot of nutrients too. I mean, there's there's tons of like micronutrients and and um, protein and good quality fat. What's, what's also interesting is like almonds are, you know, they require so much water as do pistachio and peanut does not, but I think it's just been so ingrained as like a normal item in the American diet that people have sort of almost overlooked it. I think peanuts are actually pretty 
they're like, they taste luxurious. They're very creamy. Yeah. They're very rich, but I mean, you don't see peanut milk and they haven't reached that big, I think because they've been around in peanut butter, they haven't really existed as this, um, sort of, you know, high end item. Whereas, you know, the cultivation of, of almonds has really positioned them as like such a fancy nut. Yeah. Well, Peanut. Okay, there is peanut milk actually that does exist. Oh, I've never, I've never seen it in the store. It's usually made from from raw peanuts, not roasted, because roasted has a much stronger, like nuttier flavor, like peanut butter. So the raw peanut is more of a um, has more of that, like kind of like legumey flavor. Um, but peanuts are incredibly sustainable. They don't require a lot of water. We also we live in a climate in the Southeast where there's a lot of rain in the summertime anyway. So they just, they don't really need much irrigation. Um, if anything, they might get overwatered sometimes when we have lots of, you know, afternoon thunderstorms, but that's, that's an easy solution to deal with. Do you use them on the menu at Miller union? Like, are there a lot of applications that they work their way into the menu? Anything that would be surprising where it's not just like peanut in nut form or you know roasted and then blended like something that would be surprising yeah definitely um we we use peanuts a lot in the late summer and we we buy fresh green peanuts um, but we also buy dried um, peanuts year-round but the fresh ones you know it's it's a season so it's like that's really a thing here and and we love to highlight that when we're we focus on seasonality every every month and we have a chalkboard of what's in season and late summer peanuts are going to be on that board. We actually have a salad that is really um, popular and has been on the menu for quite some time where we, we do a combination of boiled peanuts that have been shut mixed with different field peas and they're all, so it's a legume salad um, and they're tossed with um, tomato and roasted pepper and we put crunchy peanuts on top. It has a kind of a sharp tangy vinaigrette and it's served over lemon ricotta with fresh mint. And it is taste. It just tastes like summer to me. And it's something that like our customers have, once it starts getting hot out, they start requesting it. And we're like, you have to wait till after July, you know, end of July and through the early fall, we'll have that salad on. It's one of my favorite things about this show is when I talk to chefs and they're talking about their regional cooking and I learn something new and I hope the listeners learn something new, which is I honestly did not know that peanuts were seasonal. I would have never thought of that product in that way, you know? And I, I think it's also just a factor of, um, you know, what your farmer's market can offer you and everyone's is going to be a little bit different based on where they are. Um, but it's still thrilling you know, you've been in this industry for, for 30 some plus years. And, you know, I'm sure that you're still, you go to some restaurant and you're still inspired by something that you see there regionally, um, that you haven't necessarily been able to utilize that much in Georgia. So, um, do you have chefs that come down, um, for food events, you know, or to your restaurant to visit and, um, that you've collaborated with that are kind of uh, still to this day, they're surprised by what you are doing in Atlanta. And they say like, Oh, this isn't what I necessarily perceived as being, you know, Georgia cuisine or Southern cuisine, you know? 
definitely. I think, you know, I, I like to, to celebrate the history of the region when I'm cooking, but I also like to explore new ideas and new ways of fusing things together. And I feel like our menu has always got a good representation of both where we have some nods to historical dishes that have stood the test of time and they are just plain delicious and they should, they should be represented from a, from a Georgia restaurant. And then there's other things where, you know, we're, we're taking cues from other regions or even other cultures, but using our ingredients on hand and maybe just playing with the flavor profiles a little bit. And I've actually been doing that a lot lately. Um, taking cues and inspiration from the flavor profiles of other cultures, but applying it to Southern ingredients. And it's a really fun and interesting way to cook, especially with vegetables, because you can, you can sort of change your perspective on what a vegetable can be, you know? And I I actually just finished a manuscript for a new cookbook that, um, is really exploring all these kinds of ideas where you're, um, you know, maybe making some kind of snack or, or vegetable dish that has like an Indian flavor profile to it, or another one that has like a Eastern European flavor profile. And then this other version has a, you know, South American or Mexican profile. And I think that that's a lot of fun, to do in the vegetable world because there's just so many different unexplored territories when it comes to produce. Yeah. I think a good example of, of that, that I've seen on menus is like okra is having a bit of a, a moment actually, after being a much maligned vegetable that people for the most part have said, I don't really like to eat it and I don't know how to cook it. I'm now seeing it come maybe not into vogue, but like I'm seeing it on menus where it, you know, it wouldn't necessarily quote unquote belong. You're seeing it in places where it's being expanded upon its normal traditional applications, which is cool. Um, And I think that's something that, that me personally, I would say like okra, oh, that's like a Southern vegetable, right? Like that only exists in the South. And what do I know about it? Not that much, but I think that maybe it's slimy. That's what I've heard, you know? And now you're seeing it in a lot of different ways that kind of expand um, the offerings of it, which is cool. I love that there's still, in this profession, there's still space for ingenuity and change and forward motion, even though a lot of these ingredients are the same that they've been for, you know, hundreds yeah. of years. Well, okra is fascinating because it is it can be expressed in so many different ways, you know, and what one very common way is fried okra, which we, the way we do is we actually use that slime and, and we, um, we cut the okra and add a little salt and some water. And when you agitate the okra, like the, um, the inner lining of the inside of it creates that mucilaginous compound. And that's what we use as the wet part of the coating. And so it's, it's naturally occurring. And then we just drain some of that off and drop it in some cornmeal and cornstarch and fry it. And 
it's so crispy because of that slime. Like the slime makes it crispy. Um, See, don't waste the slime, folks. You've been doing it wrong the entire time. Obviously, like stew okra for a long time and it gets very, you know, it, it'll thicken a stew or a gumbo. It'll definitely, you know, create that. That that will be the ultimate amount of slime you could produce from okra. But if you grill it on a really hot grill or broil it or, um, you know, some kind of quick heat application, um, especially if they're left whole, you don't get that. It doesn't develop. Um, it's just, it's, it's really just from friction on the interior surface that creates that, that kind of unique scenario of the slime. That's awesome. I mean, I, I didn't know any of that and I just sort of assumed that there was no way around it, you know, that it just, it is always going to be present. Um, and you just sort of have to deal with it. Yeah. If you grill okra on, on a hot grill, just get a little char on both sides. It doesn't take long. It's more like eating a green bean. You know what I mean? It's just like, like a, it's a little more like crisp and, and, and tender like that. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide, whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern peanut growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Line on Heritage Radio. Let's jump back into the conversation with Chef Stephen Satterfield, the executive chef and co-owner of Miller Union in Atlanta, Georgia. Your restaurant, Miller Union, is, at this point, it is an institution. I mean, it is it opened in 2009. So uh, it has really, it has been through so much. And, um, and of course, we'll have to talk a little bit about COVID, but, you know, I'm also interested in a chunk of your journey that we skipped over a little bit, which is, you know, you went to GT and were on your way to becoming an architect. You had a, a lot of musical skill that is part of your background as well. At a certain point, I have to imagine that when you became a line cook, your parents or someone, one of your siblings said, hey, you, you have these other things that you're very good at. Why are you going to be a line cook? What what drew you to to the world of of culinary, and what kind of led to your 
um, to putting a, a pause or a stop on the other aspects of your life that were playing such a large role for you up until that point, which were your degree in architecture and also you were an, and still are uh, a musician. Well, I'll start back with when I finished college. Um, I realized when I got into the field of architecture in the practice of it that I, that my heart wasn't in it. And I listened to my gut and I just backed out of it. And that was probably the biggest blow to the family was that I studied it for five years and then I decided I didn't want to do it. Um, but that said, I've already preached my um, appreciation for my education and I, I wouldn't change a thing. I started playing guitar shortly after I finished college. Um, I had played classical music growing up and I was in the Savannah Youth Symphony Orchestra, played clarinet and bass clarinet. I had a private tutor. One of my early jobs as a teenager was playing in the Savannah Theater Company in the orchestra pit of a quintet. Um, so I really had some pretty good chops on the woodwind side and I almost went to conservatory and I decided that, that I needed to try something else before I made a decision about following the same path that I had done through high school. Um, so I was at another turning point, but I turned back to music and I started playing guitar and being influenced by the music that I was listening to on college radio and in Europe. And um, I started writing songs and playing rhythm guitar and just like kind of humming over it. And um, one of my classmates in architecture, she grew up playing electric guitar and, and piano. And we started talking about music and we kind of doodled around together and we, we started playing together. And we were really liking the sound and the direction it was going in. And we found a friend who was a drummer who worked at a record store nearby. And we started playing as a three piece. And then we added a bass player shortly after that. And she sang and I also um, did vocals. And we formed this band called Seely. And this was in um, 1993. And we made a, cassette demo and sent it to a bunch of uh, record labels. And one of them contacted us. It was a label in the UK called Two Pure. They were based in London. And they were the launching pad label for bands like Stereolab and PJ Harvey. Um, we were like shocked that they contacted us, but they really liked our sound. And we... They wanted to come see us play and we decided that it would be a bigger impact if we did it in another city to make it seem like we were bigger than we really were. So we booked a show in New York at this place called The Cooler in the Meatpacking District. And um, basically, it was probably like a Wednesday night or I don't know what, but we had a bunch of friends that had moved up there over time or lived there and they kind of rallied together and got people to show up. and. They came to that show the next day they met us for lunch and they gave us a record contract. And so we became a recording artist um, for this label and put it up. We ended up putting out three albums total um, over the course of a five year period. We started touring and we were, we were on college radio. We were um, 
charting in the top 20. Every time we had an album come out, we were touring with other bands that we liked and were into. And we made a lot of friends on the road and we bought a van. I mean, we were like, you know, inching our way to some kind of success. The thing is like at that level where you're just playing, um, you know, venues and, and you're on college radio and you can get somewhat success, but you can't really like, you know, you can't sustain financially on that kind of lifestyle because you end up spending so much money on gas or hotel rooms or food while you're traveling. And, and it kind of just all breaks even at the end. It was an incredible experience. We were in our early mid twenties and, you know, going all over the country and playing, you know, playing in different venues. It was just really cool. Um, but it, after a while, I think it started to work, take its toll on us and we were all getting tired of being on the road. Um, and some of us, you know, wanted to buy a house and settle down or whatever. And so we just, we disbanded, um, I think it was in 2008. No, it's not true. That's wrong. In two, uh, our last record came out in 2000 and we, we disbanded that year. Um, and I started another band called Silver Lakes. That was more of a solo project. And that went on until 2008. Um, but during that whole t time period, I was working in restaurants. So I, it was just an easy way to, you know, slide back in somewhere where I'd worked before, go on the road, come back. I had, I had a great boss that would just always sort of take people back if they left on good standing. And um, I, I really enjoyed cooking and I, I was certainly drawn to it. I was afraid to cook. It was something I had always done growing up. And like I said, I cooked for myself the whole time I was in Paris, the whole time I was in college. So it didn't, it just was sort of like a more of a hobby for me. I never really thought about it as a career until I started paying attention to chefs in the Atlanta area. And one chef I was particularly drawn to was Anne Quatrano. She um, had a, a very nice main, uh, restaurant and tasting menu at a place called Bacchanalia, still around today. Um, it is still one of the best restaurants in the city. And she also had a, a more casual place that opened in 99 um, called Floataway Cafe. And I got, I convinced her to hire me. I was certainly under, um, underqualified, but made up for it in attitude and, um, and in my, approach i mean I, I just really wanted to learn and so i i learned under her um between second and third records and and worked in that kitchen it was an incredible learning experience and i left to go on tour when i came back um which was our our last tour with Sealy. i started working at a place called watershed and that was um chef scott peacock who i ended up working there for nine years one of those things where I started as a grill cook, worked my way up to saute, and then I got a sous chef role. Then I became the executive sous chef, and that was over a long period of time. And I was probably executive sous for several years before I left. Um, but I always found ways to keep learning in that restaurant rather than go somewhere else. I really liked the food. It was simple and fresh and seasonal. And it was a good foundation for understanding 
Southern food because Scott was very much rooted in traditional Southern cooking. And I learned a lot about historical Southern food working under him. I also got to travel with him and do events. So when he would cook in New York City, uh, you know, a fundraiser or at the Beard Awards, I would go and do the, help him do the food and I would organize all the, you know, all the prep and the transport of everything from from the South up to, you know, to LaGuardia and into whatever venue we were going to, which was an incredibly challenging thing to do. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to move, you know, 350 pounds of food on an airplane, uh, but I know how to do it. And I could, I could tell you some insider tips uh, if you ever want to know. <laughs> so I, I actually was training to, to run a restaurant and I was training to do outside events, whether I knew it or not. I got the training on the job. And once I realized I have my, I have some of my own ideas that I want to try out and maybe, maybe one day I could have my own venue. Um, we started my, my friend, Carolyn, who is married to my business partner, Neil, at the time they were just dating. She said, why don't you guys join forces and, and open a restaurant together? He was running, uh, Italian place in my neighborhood um, and we started as a bus boy, worked his way up to general manager. And so we both came from the same background where we started at the bottom and, and ended up at the top in one restaurant where we both stayed for a long time. He was there for 10 years and we learned valuable lessons by working under somebody and working there for a very long time. It's funny to see now, you know, the cooks don't stay long. Like they just, they'll go somewhere for one or two years, if that, and then they move on to the next place. And it's like, if you put some time into a place and and really allow yourself to grow with that restaurant, if you like it and you want to stay, you can learn so much more than what's offered to you. And you just have to keep asking for it. And I think that's something that is sort of missing today with younger cooks that I don't see that as often. I think they get bored and they don't like repetition. And let me tell you something. If you run a restaurant, you're going to repeat so many things. You're going to repeat yourself in the way that you instruct everyone because you're constantly a broken record just saying the same thing over and over again because you have to redirect and you have to, and when there's new people, you have to give them the whole spiel, you know? And it's like the, seasonality side of it if you're paying attention to you know the seasons and buying from local farms there's there's a lot of dialogue around that and uh, i can tell you that i have i have personally witnessed climate change because the seasons are different than they used to be they they start earlier and they end earlier and then the summer is three times as long um (laughs) but you know repetition is something i think like you have to understand if if you want to run a good restaurant and have longevity, which we are, we're coming up on our 13th anniversary, you can't allow yourself to get bored. You have to find new ways to, to keep, keep it fresh and keep it relevant because that's really, to me, what success looks like is a restaurant that has a longer term than just, you know, 
five years or, or whatever. Some people max out at 10. And I could see Miller Union going on for a very long time if we set it up to be for the torch to be passed. I don't want to work the hours and the labor that I do now. I still, I still work in the kitchen every day and I'm there for 11 or 12 hours a day, but I do love what I do. And I, and I understand the value of that success and that there has to be a captain and a leader that's inspiring everybody to, to want to do it right. And I think that's really the difference between like, um, you know, a restaurant, a long-standing restaurant has to always have that person in place, whether it's me or somebody else. If, you know, if I find that successor and that wants to keep it going and I take a step back a little later on in life, I mean, I'm going to be 53 this summer. You know, I don't, I don't really want to, to, to do that forever, but I would like the legacy of Miller to live on. Yeah. You've articulated a unique issue, which is a, a subset problem of restaurants that actually have been really successful, which is like, you've reached the post 10 year point. So the question is like, how do you replicate that again for another 10 or another 20 or, or 30? Um, and when you're speaking about, you know, people staying for a year and leaving, I want to, I wonder when you and your business partner, Neil, have these conversations about, you know, what you've built, but also what you continue to build, are, are there any concrete ways that you can share? Other owners might be thinking to themselves, like me and my business partner want to, we want to keep this going. We want to keep this relationship strong. How do you and Neil, um, how do you create processes and an environment where you've made it to 13 years and you know what, you're probably going to make it another 20 if you keep doing these things correctly. How do you set that yourself up for success? I think there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, we have, we have a good deal of salaried employees and I think that's, you know, putting people in positions where they can, lead or co-lead and support the the vision of the restaurant, I think is really important. Um, we probably have, you know, for the size restaurant we are, we probably have more salaried employees than most, but it gives people a sense of ownership and, and leadership. And also for, you know, for those employees, we offer, you know, things like bonuses that are based on, on the health of the restaurant, whether it's, you know, our food costs or labor costs or profitability or whatever it may be. Um, and I think just the, the hands-on nature that Neil and I both have, like really demonstrating that we care and that we're willing to do whatever it takes to keep the train going down the tracks. I think that goes a long way. You know, I'm not one of those chefs that, um, at this point, just I'm gallivanting around and doing events and food, food and wine festivals all the time. Yes, you see me at those things, but I'm rushing back to the restaurant to jump on the line and help as soon as I'm back. And, and I'm not dissing anybody else and the, the way they run things. It's just, I think I just see a difference when 
my presence is there and, and the expectation is, um, is always there. I also really treat everybody with respect and, and in a friendly natured way. And I think that goes a long way too. Um, I'm, I push the gas pedal when it's needed and I redirect, um, or, or I just direct in, in a, in a way that I think is uh, respectful, but also has a built-in expectation in the message. Um, so I don't really fly off the handle or, or, or lose my cool because I don't think there's any value in doing that. I think the value is putting trust in your team and, and letting them know clearly what your expectations are. And then if they're not being met to, to redirect them in a way that's, um, positive and, and helping them learn how to get there, you know, and then there's just some cases where it's not, you realize after some time that it won't happen. Those are the harder scenarios. But I think that when people put their mind to something, if they really want to do it and they have the aptitude for it, that, that anything's possible. And, you know, sometimes just challenging your team to, hold themselves to a higher standard without putting too much pressure on them, I think this can be a really healthy way to keep the dream alive. Um, reminding everybody what, why we do what we do and what we get excited about and, and, and also just sticking to the methods and the protocols that we've designed because we know it works. Um, and I think one of the things I, I love about our team too is like, we do have, we often have meetings and we talk about what's working, what's not working. And if we find something that isn't working, we try to be as solution oriented as we can and fix it because nobody wants to work somewhere where there's something that's broken or something that's not working, like both figuratively or literally, you know, if, if a piece of equipment is broken, I get it fixed as soon as possible. If, if a system is broken and it's not working how we intended or it's not being followed, then we analyze it. Does it need to be changed or does it just need to be reiterated that this is how we do it? You know? And so there's just so many, I think it's, it can be really exhausting because some people don't have the patience for that, but I think you, you have to look at the big picture and see how far, like you said, how far we've come and how much farther can we go? Like every couple of years we sort of reassess like what what is the longevity of the restaurant like right now we have a very clear 15-year plan so that's only two and a half years away but we beyond that we can't see the future just yet but we're open to it continuing we just don't necessarily want to work at the pace and the intensity that we have been for the past 13 years and so that's the, that's the question is like, you know, yes, I want to enjoy life and spend time with my loved ones and my family and friends a little more, but I also have created something that still needs guidance and attention. And I, I take, take a lot of responsibility. I take it, that responsibility very seriously. Steven, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's been great to chat with you. Uh, tell everybody about where they can come and find you since you're there every single day. Uh, what's the um, address, website, 
and Instagram for Miller Union. And also, when is the when is the 13 year anniversary? Okay, so Miller Union, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. We're on um, the west side or west midtown, and we're just past the Georgia Tech campus. So I'm I'm working close to where I went to school. <laughs> um, our 10 year our 13 year anniversary will be on November. I think it's the ninth. Um, sometime in early November. And our website is millerunion.com. And our Instagram is at millerunionatl. And our anniversary is the 10th. I just looked it up. Perfect. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, really appreciated you, you know, sharing some of your story and also uh, talking a little bit about Georgia specific cuisine. It was great to, uh, to chat with you and, uh, I hope I'll catch up with you again in person. It's been a couple of years since we've run into each other at, at Charleston, but maybe now that COVID is hopefully, uh, you know, winding down a little bit, I'm hoping to run into you again next time I, I come through the South. Sounds good. Great. Great to see you and talk to you, Eli. Appreciate the time. Appreciate it. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.